Okay, hello everyone and welcome to ACTUS Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. ACTUS Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to ACTUS. Today, Wednesday, September 12th, marks our 105th program. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of ACTUS, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Denial Trends and Strategies. I'm joined today by my familiar co-host at left on your screen, Alan Frady. Uh, Alan is a CDI education specialist for us here at ACTUS, where he teaches our clinical documentation improvement boot camps, as well as serving as a subject matter expert. Uh, just brief background. Brian, did we lose you? Okay, I think we may have lost Brian. Tim, Brett, can you hear me? Sure. Yep. Okay, we're gonna give we're gonna give Brian yep. like thirty seconds to get back on, and if he <laughs> if he doesn't make it, we'll continue on with the questions. Um, and I hate to have dead air, but we'll give him we'll give him a good ten or fifteen seconds here. Okay, well, I don't know how long it's going to take him, so I'll go ahead and introduce the guest. Hey, Alan, can you hear me now? Oh, there you are. Yeah, we were just about, we gave you about 10 or 15 seconds, oh. but we we're about to move on. I'm glad, yeah. you're, glad you're back. <laughs> I'm have, I've been having some phone issues today. Apologize, audience. Uh, let me get back into the program here. I just introduced Alan. We also have two great guests today. I hope everyone can hear me okay. Um, we have uh, Tim Brundage. Tim is the medical director of the Brundage Group. You may recognize him as a past ACTUS advisory board member. He's also a diplomat of the American Board of Internal Medicine and is the co-chair of the CDI committee for a group that I like a lot, the American College of Physician Advisors. Uh, he's a regular speaker for us here at Actus. You may have seen him at um, our recent conference in May in San Antonio. Um, and I'm hoping we can get him back on the podium again this year in, our, in Orlando in uh, 2019. So welcome to the program, Dr. Brundage. Thank you for having me, Brian. All right. And next, I'd like to introduce um, Brett Hogard. So Brett is the chief medical officer of Brundage Group, working alongside Tim. Uh, Brett's board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine and serves as a hospitalist as well as medical director at Northside Hospital and St. Petersburg General Hospital. Uh, Dr. Hogard is an expert in process improvement and is committed to improving the efficiency of medical systems. And I'd also like to welcome him to his first Actus Radio. So welcome to the program. Thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. All right, as I always do, I'm going to start with a poll question related to today's topic. You should be seeing that on your screen, and the question reads, 
Are your CDI staff involved in denials prevention and or appeals? Your options are yes, they are involved in prevention, denials, and appeals. Yes, but prevention efforts only. Maybe they're not involved in actual writing of appeals or, appeal or, or uh, denials on the back end. No, but maybe your physician advisor is. This is we're seeing this is a fairly common role for physician advisors. Uh, not at all, no involvement with CDI. Or other not applicable. Again, um, is your CDI staff involved in denials of prevention and or appeals? Uh, yes, both. Yes, but prevention efforts only. No, but our physician advisor is not at all or other not applicable. Again, as I always say, some of our listeners are not in the acute care hospital setting. All right, we'll go ahead and we will close this poll out and we'll return to the results in just a few minutes. Okay, as I mentioned, our guests today are Tim Brundage and Brett Hogard. Dr. Brundage, Dr. Hogard, welcome to the program. Thanks for being a part of Actus Radio and welcome back to the show, Tim. Um, Thank you, Brian. Let's start. Yeah, let's let's start with some of the you know major denials trends you guys are seeing. Maybe from a diagnosis and or DRG perspective, I know there's a lot of denials, especially related to uh, you know inpatient uh, medical necessity and, and uh, the entire admission. But deny a diagnosis DRG perspective, you know, are there certain ones that seem to be more heavily scrutinized than others these days? Yeah, so this is uh, Brett. I think some of the more common denials that we encounter really haven't changed a whole lot in the last couple of years. We're seeing a lot of sepsis denials, a lot of malnutrition, acute respiratory failure is a pretty common one. Uh, acute encephalopathy is one that the uh, auditors like to focus on a lot. I think kind of the key between all of those is really they the auditors really like to look for ambiguity. So it's important to kind of know what criteria the auditors are using for denial. Uh, for example, we have uh, we had a case of acute kidney injury recently. Uh, this is a denial template that one insurer likes to use pretty consistently. And I think it's important to know what they're citing as their information. Uh, in this particular one, they are using this 2008 article, which they are actually citing as guidelines, but really aren't guidelines. It's a journal article uh, that has some proposed states of AKI. Uh, and in that particular case, the patient actually met criteria based on their source. So I think you really want to look at what they're using for their criteria. We had another case recently, too, which uh, I think is worth mentioning. Uh, it was a case of a patient with COPD. The patient had clear evidence of COPD. There's documentation all throughout the medical record of COPD. Uh, there's criteria supporting it, but the insurance company denied because the the prescriber did not give steroids. So instead of using the traditional kind of clinical criteria, they're now looking into what the physician treatment is and using that as a potential denial technique. So that's something to keep an eye on, I think. Mm. Well, and that was Thanks, very Brian. concerning to us, uh, Brian, because usually the denier or the auditor is looking to deny based on clinical criteria. And in this case, they're actually, in my opinion, judging the physician's choice of treatment for his or her patient and stating that that alone is the reason why COPD was not diagnosed because the 
auditor did not feel that it was treated the way the auditor would have treated it, which is, in my opinion, a very scary thing for the auditor to do when they haven't seen the patient at the bedside, haven't done a physical examination, and then they're judging the physician on the back end. So that was why Brett and I wanted to just make sure that the audience is aware of that. That was very concerning to me. It's because I don't like that technique. It, it concerns me that the licensed provider's treatment choice would influence whether or not the diagnosis was valid in the record. And I think that's a very important uh, distinction. The other one that I wanted to bring up are the sepsis denials that Brett touched on. Um, you know, sepsis is one of these diagnoses that is hotly debated because we have two sets of criteria. Um, and what I have been trying to get our doctors to know through education is that the SOFA criteria are actually encouraging us to diagnose severe sepsis. So in an effort to reduce your risk of denial, if you can get the doctor to understand the SOFA criteria, if you can get the doctor to diagnose severe sepsis rather than simple sepsis, and finally, if you can get the doctor to diagnose sepsis and explicitly link it to organ dysfunction, that will code to severe sepsis. So one of the things that the auditors are looking less frequently at are charts with the code for severe sepsis so you can get your doctor on board with diagnosing and linking the sepsis to the organ dysfunction. Uh, importantly, it doesn't have to be organ failure, it merely has to be organ dysfunction. Then that will really reduce that risk in that chart. Gotcha, some great tips there. That's good information. Um, yeah, obviously, this is Alan. Obviously, they're trying to tune in to certain red flags. You've already mentioned that they look for ambiguity in the chart, uh, treatment, any criteria that they can do. What are some other red flags that you think are consistent patterns among auditors? We know traditionally they'll look for a record that only has one CC or one MCC, see if it is a controversial diagnosis, and then try to pull it. Um, they also, uh, we've heard some in the industry about trending data and look and trying to target high performers. We've seen a lawsuit on that recently. Are you aware of any other uh, red flags above and beyond CC, MCC capture or certain problem diagnoses? We haven't encountered that a whole lot, you know, as far as uh, I think higher level data, we're still really seeing mostly the CC and MCC denials pretty commonly. Uh, I think a lot of, you know, some common red flags that we run into are, one is when you see physicians that are cloning notes. Uh, that's pretty common practice, I think, with the electronic health record and it's really become difficult because it really gets difficult to defend. For instance, does a patient really need to be in the hospital another day if they've got the same note every day? It gets hard to justify that continued stay and to justify admission. Uh, I mean, we see that also with insufficient documentation. We had uh, actually a denial I was just working on the other day. Uh, patient clearly, when you look at it, probably had an infected uh, knee from a prior surgery. Uh, and what happened was the physician documented, you know, the surgery and all that, but there was no diagnosis made. So there was no diagnosis of, you know, an infected joint, which makes it an easy denial for the insurance company because there's really no diagnosis there. Uh, I think another thing you run into frequently is conflicting documentation. So, you know, sepsis is probably one of those you see frequently where one physician's calling it sepsis, one is not, 
and so I think if you're not having consistency there, that is an easy target. Uh, you know, concurrent review of those charts is probably your best opportunity, I think, for those issues so that you can kind of address them while they're happening. For sure. We also uh, um, have discussed, and I've been saying for a long time, Brett, that we shouldn't uh, learn from auditors. We should, uh, we should never let them teach us. But what we have seen in the malnutrition world is because of the OIG scrutiny, we've actually changed our education a bit to where we ask the doctor to diagnose the condition, comma, and tell us how did you address it. And that's something that if you look at the federal registrar of what is a secondary condition, that isn't necessary to have to do according to the rules, but because of the way the OIG is scrutinizing malnutrition, we have changed our education in that regard. Um, and that may be something that we have done, um, you know, based on the, uh, the, the MedPAR data that has kind of selected these certain diagnoses that are being uh, uh, scrutinized, I think, at a, at a higher than normal uh, level. Right. Let's, let's th thanks for that, Tim. Let's talk a little bit about um, CDI's involvement in denial. So we're going to see the results of our poll shortly. But one of the objections that I hear from CDI getting more involved, even though it seems like it's a natural fit, is sort of the mission creep um, argument, meaning that getting involved in denials and appeals could cut down on the time spent during their concurrent reviews, querying physicians, educating, et cetera. So what, what are your thoughts on this? Is this a valid complaint or, or no? Or somewhere in the middle? Well, Brian, this is Tim. I do think it's a valid complaint that, you know, every single day the CDI specialist is asked to do more. But I think, I think that's also a wonderful thing about the value of the CDI specialist. So obviously, I think the hospital administration is targeting their very valuable team and saying, look, we need help in this area, this area, this area, and this area. And I think that that's something that the CDI specialist needs to get involved in denial because that will allow the CDI specialist to learn what the auditor is looking for. It will allow them to take that back to their doctor when they're doing their education and say, hey, doc, just want to let you know, we have seen these denials, like Brett said, in conflicting documentation, uh, things of that nature. So please, when you're in the record uh, and you're looking at sepsis, please make sure that you and your consultant are documenting consistently. And so if the CDI is actually involved in the denials, I think it'll raise their awareness of what the auditor is looking for and especially what the auditor is looking uh, to deny and what techniques they're using to deny. So I do think that it is a necessary evil um, of being a CDI specialist that, that's such a valuable tool for the administration of the hospital that they keep asking our folks to get involved in that. The other thing they've asked us to get involved in is, is utilization management. So I'm not sure uh, if you guys have seen it out there, but we have seen a blending of CDI and utilization management where the CDI team is asked to become more and more involved in that role as well for a similar reason. Great. Yeah, I agree with that, Tim. Sometimes CDI is a victim of its own success, but it's kind of a balancing act there. Right. Alan, did you have a, a next question for these guys? Yeah, sorry. I, I was deep in thought on the topic at the moment you caught me. So <laughs> one thing I've 
one thing I've noticed that's often missing from the Niles is a communication piece. Um, you know, talking about physician documentation versus auditors, and you've got CDI encoders in the middle. Um, what mechanism or, or how often do you see or what's the importance on giving the feedback directly back to the physicians? I mean, how often are physicians actually being told uh, why their denials are coming through and uh, getting that education and then are able to, to have actionable uh, information available? Yeah, this is Brett here. I think that's one of the things that frequently doesn't happen is it does not get back to the physician. And I think that's really a missed opportunity. Uh, you know, most physicians are kind of just in their everyday practice, aren't really in the whole denial side, don't really know what's happening from that perspective. And I think when they're told or shown, you know, hey, your diagnosis was denied this, oftentimes they get frustrated and really are surprised at, the, I think, the level of things that are denied, to be honest with you. Uh, and I think it's real important because I think once the physicians see that, I think you'll get much better buy-in from a CDI perspective, you know, education on why they need to document certain things. I think you'll get better buy-in by kind of presenting this back to the physicians so they understand what's going on. Well, I agree, Brett. I think that's essential. Um, we have been doing that. The last time I was on Actus Radio, Brian, we took a poll and only 4% of the denial management teams in the country on the Actus poll we're actually sharing feedback back with their physicians. That's something that we do all the time. So uh, every time we step in and work with a team on a denial, we also share that back with the physician. We share back them medical necessity, uh, denial information and medical necessity education. We share with them clinical validation denials that have occurred and uh, the documentation that may put that chart at risk. And it's really important to do that. It really makes your doctor uh, better the next time, which is obviously the whole the whole idea behind documentation improvement is to improve over time. And without feedback, you know, the physicians really um, will not and cannot improve. Right, right. Great points there, Tim and uh, and Brett. And um, I know that's always something that eternally plague CDI professionals is how to get the physician buy-in, how to explain what's in it for them and, and, and getting them involved in denials to this degree seems like a, a, a no-brainer and a, a, you know takes effort, but might certainly be worth the effort put in. Um, some great comments during the show, by the way, and appreciate those coming in. And uh, one, of our, one of our regular listeners told me to tell the audience that, remind the audience not to fall for auditor's criteria in quotes to deny a case simply because the denial letter states it in a matter-of-fact way. Make sure to get it reviewed by a clinician and fight it. So good advice there. Um, just to wrap up here on this topic, Tim and Brett, you know, if someone um, listening to this program isn't involved in denials but maybe did want to get, um, uh, you know, get, get into it in a, in a more robust way, be it, be it monitoring and or, the, you know, the appeals process, any recommendations for, for getting started? Maybe a tip or two you could share? Brian, this is Tim. I would recommend people get involved in Actus. Uh, so we have been going to the Actus conference for years, and there's been lots of denial lectures there. I think it's a wonderful opportunity to go ahead and get educated by going to the conference and listening to the talks. Um, I'm hoping this year that I'll be able to share some clinical criteria 
for the most common hospital diagnosis. So I've submitted that one. I hope that'll be one that we'll hopefully be able to share in Orlando. And that will go right back to your uh, your auditor's criteria in quotes. So if we say auditor's criteria, that's something we definitely want to be uh, wary of. We don't want to learn from our auditors. We want to make sure that we actually are reading the criteria, understand the evidence-based medicine, and then we're using the criteria that's in the in the published literature. So if I could give some right. give some suggestions, I would say, you know, come to my lecture in Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, appreciate the vote of confidence in the in the in the conference, Tim. Um, I I'll be there. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and uh, pull up our poll results. Again, we asked you all, are your CDI staff involved in denials, prevention, and or appeals? So I'm going to read the current results, and I will read the results from April 2016, where we asked an identical poll. So right now, we say 40% say yes, they are involved in prevention and efforts um, and or appeals. 21% say yes, but prevention efforts only. 5% say no, but our physician advisor is. 28% are not involved at all, and 5% not applicable. So this is actually interesting because we're seeing a trend upwards in CDI being involved in denials and appeals. So in 2016, April 2016, our poll results were only 28% saying yes. So we're up 12% there. 19% um, uh, and, and April said they were inv involved in only prevention efforts, up, but now we're up to 21%. 7% uh, um, uh, on the next option, so more had their physician advisor doing this exclusively. And, and back in April 2016, 40% 40, 40 of our audience said no, they were not involved. And now that's, that number has trended down to 28%. So some positive trends in terms of folks getting involved with with denials and appreciate everyone who put their uh, poll uh, poll results in. Any any thoughts on this, Dr. Brundiger or, or Dr. Hogard? Well, I'll just say, Brian, I think that that's a good trend. I think that shows, like we discussed, the value of the CDI program. So your CDI team is obviously being asked to do more because there's value in the program, and that's how you're going to keep your program is by showing the administration the value behind it. Um, I think this is a, I think this is a nice trend. I think it means our CDI teams are very valuable. Yep. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, you've got the advantage when you get the whole CDI team together, you know, including the physician advisor, you've got really a group that understands both the business side and the clinical side, which is, I think, what you really need to be effective at, you know, you know kind of dealing with this. All right. Well, thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate it. At this point, we are going to switch to over to our In the News segment. Again, In the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Today, I'd like to discuss a proposed change to the uh, venerable 1995-97 E&M coding guidelines, which we all love, that has the industry buzzing, to say the least. Um, so I'm showing you on your screen, you should be seeing a screen of the um, this article from actus.org, which is a summary of these changes by our lead coding bootcamp instructor, Shannon McCall. Um, this was posted on September 1st on the Actus website. I recommend you checking out the full article. I'm just going to summarize here briefly. 
so in the in the 2019 Medicare physician fee schedule proposed rule, CMS is suggesting that providers uh, may use one of three options as criteria for selecting a level of service for office and other outpatient service E&M codes. So this is obviously concerning the physician's professional billing or E&M coding. And uh, in the past, for those not familiar with um, E&M coding, physicians had to follow these 1995 or 97 guidelines, their option of which to use, but there was a lot of hoops to jump through and a lot of elements to document. So CMS is proposing a simplified way to report these codes. Uh, they're allowing uh, f physicians to choose from either medical decision-making or MDM. Uh, they're also allowing them to choose time as a factor for choosing their E&M code, again, for these particular code ranges, 99201 to 215, uh, or they're allowing them to choose from the documentation guidelines using 95 or 97. So it's a simplification, uh, pretty dramatically, actually, to, to allow them to report their 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 E&M code for that patient visit. Uh, Shannon notes in her article, these proposed changes do not eliminate the need for to providers to continue to complete thorough documentation for continuity of care, but just to simplifies, simplify the burden for commonly reported E&M codes. Um, CMS has estimated that 40% of the allowed charges paid out under the physician fee schedule are from E&M codes. And of that vast amount, 20% are these, these code ranges in particular. So this proposal is effective for only those series of E&M codes that, were, that are outlined here, 99201 through 215. Um, so just a technical detail there. Um, also very interesting and even more interesting to folks commenting are the, the corresponding uh, payment changes that are being proposed. So I'm gonna pull up just quickly a very helpful graphic that's on cms.gov. So this is from right from CMS about the, the sort of collapsing the payment rates for these codes. Um, so they're, um, you know, a, so basically a single rate for level two through five over here at right would be $135. And you can see how that matches up to the current payment rates. You know, right now a level three uh, payment is 110, so it's obviously uh, an increase over right now a level two or three service. However, it's not as um, it's it's a lower reimbursement rate than a level current level four or five service. And you can see how they match up with um, again the, this is for established patients and new patients. Established new new patients are higher because this is more workup required and more documentation requirement required. So. Um, an interesting arrangement here, again, simplified documentation um, requirements. Uh, payments are changed. In some cases, they're greater, but in some cases for more complex patients, uh, they're, they're lower. So there is a lot of uh, industry buzz about this. I was telling Brett and Tim prior to the call that I would not be surprised if there was some changes made. This is, again, a proposed rule. The comment window um, there was an article I read today on Fierce Healthcare where they've, CMS has received 15,000 comments on these proposed changes. So um, I suspect, well, CMS, it will have a lot to do to go through these comments and then issue their final rule. Um, so an interesting change, again, for those that are, as we talked today about 
how to get physicians on board. Certainly, this has got the attention of physicians. Um, recommend you check out this article on actus.org. And since I do have two physicians on the call, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, Tim, Tim or Brett, what you guys think of, what's your reaction to these proposed changes? Any, any thoughts for our audience? Well, Brian, I think initially, um, anytime you, you change the way physicians are paid, they'll get a bit nervous. And I think you can see that in the number of responses Medicare has received. I watched right. the webinar, uh, the hour-long webinar, where CMS had a panel of physicians who discussed why they were looking at this. And the whole idea was their, their goal was to reduce the burden on the physician of documentation in the office. They felt that the 1995 structure was very rigid and the things that were put into the note weren't necessarily of value because they were only put in the note to fit the billing requirement and they didn't necessarily have any real value to the care of the patient. So the theory is that the doctor will be able to spend more time focused on the assessment and plan or so-called medical decision-making portion of the note. That's the theory. I think anybody who looks at that would also see in addition to that theory, they're also looking to just reduce reimbursement just a bit wherever they can. And I think that that's what we see all across healthcare. Right. Thanks, Tim. Any last comments on that, Brett? Or... Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think there's been a lot of discussion about it. I think, you know, the one concern raised is that obviously as you get to be a more complex patient, uh, the physicians are not paid more for seeing more complex patients where they were in the past. So, you know, what the effects of that are going to be, I think, is one concern that's been raised. Uh, but there's been, yeah, a whole lot of discussion about it, and I think a lot of positions about what it's really going to be. Mm -hmm. All right. Can you guys still hear me okay, by the way? I'm, I'm, I'm re reporting some choppy sounding, but I'm doing my best here with a little bit of a bro broken line today. All right. You're coming through good. All right. Let's wrap up here quickly with um, Actus Update. I know we're right at the top of the hour. I did want to remind folks that next week is CDI week. So happy CDI week in advance. Uh, this is a national week of recognition that Actus sponsors and has since 2011. Um, if you haven't checked out all the awesome resources we have uh, for you, you don't have to be an Actus member to actually access these. So. If you go to actus.org and you go under our networking and events tab, you will see right here, CDI week, click here. We've got a free webinar that will have a CCDS credit. It's a great panel session that we're having some, uh, a couple industry experts on to evaluate the results of our comprehensive uh, industry overview survey. We, we ask people to weigh in on up to 30 questions, all aspects of the CDI industry. So check that out. We've got uh, suggested weeks of activities you may want to try at your hospital, crossword puzzles you can download and use. We've got a great logo. Uh, CDI Mosaic is our theme this year. I won't spoil all the fact why we went with Mosaic, but it has to do with the multidisciplinary nature of this profession and the number of folks involved that make a great CDI team and create that mosaic. We've got a poster. Um, and a lot of resources coming your way next week. Uh, I was told that we are going to do a Facebook Live today at 1 p.m. with our CDI editor, Linnea Archibald, leading that effort. 
and explaining some of the ways that you can get involved in CDI Week uh, and how you can send your pictures to Linnea of your team celebrating CDI Week and how we will use those on the website to really make it a fun, um, engaging week of recognition for all the great work that you guys do. All right. Well, that is going to do it for today's edition of Actus Radio. Um, we'll see you back here again in two weeks on Wednesday, September 26th for our next program, CDI Dream Team. Uh, as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests or ideas about the format of the show, please send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. That will do it. Thanks again, Tim and Brett. And we'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Take care, everyone. Right.